It is June 1938. The road to war has been paved. Japan is relentlessly bombing China. Franco is pushing his point in the Spanish Civil War with the help of Italy and Germany. Against the Treaty of Versailles, and according to Hitler himself, Germany has rearmed to an extent the like of which the world has not yet seen. The endeavor has restored the economically devastated Germany to near full employment, winning the Nazi party the support of working class and, of course, wealthy Germans. Degenerate art is being destroyed. The brown shirts are dog-whistling civilians to attack the Jewish citizens who are losing their jobs, homes, and lives by the tens of thousands. A few fortunate Jews who can escape persecution, such as Sigmund Freud, are granted refuge in London. Resistance fighter Lissolotti Hermann is not so fortunate. She is executed by the Nazi party on June 20th. Across the Channel, in a still relatively indifferent England, bookshop windows feature the newly published Three Guineas, an essay book by the pacifist Virginia Woolf, addressing the question, how can women help avoid war? You are listening to She Speaks Volumes, the primer for over 500 years of feminist history, theory, and philosophy. In this episode, we're listening to excerpts from the essay, Three Guineas, written by Virginia Woolf in 1938. If you enjoy this episode, please consider donating using the Buy Me a Coffee link in the show notes, so I can continue to hire voice actors for this project. Excerpts in this episode are read by Fiona Thrale. Three Guineas is a satirical, book-length essay written as England is on the brink of World War II. The essay is in response to a letter Wolfe has received asking her for a donation towards peace efforts and posing the question, how can women help prevent war? I don't know if she really received the letter or not, but it's not difficult to imagine that she did, or something like it. Women were beginning to build their own social power. They had had the vote for the past decade and had been admitted to the colleges, and were now entering into the professions. Three Guineas is her response to this request. She queries if she, in fact, is qualified to answer the question, and in doing so, explores the roles women play in education, the professions, and in the private household. Within the letter are two hypothetical letters from two other organizations, one asking for donations to rebuild a women's college, the other asking for donations to a women's professional organization. Through these three letters, Wolf explores the relatively recent ability of women to be educated, to earn their own money, and to vote, and if it is within the power of women to help prevent war. Three years is a long time to leave a letter unanswered, and your letter has been lying without an answer even longer than that. I had hoped that it would answer itself, or that other people would answer it for me. But there it is, with its question. How, in your opinion, are we to prevent war? Still unanswered. 
It is true that many answers have suggested themselves, but none that would not need explanation, and explanations take time. In this case, too, there are reasons why it is particularly difficult to avoid misunderstanding. A whole page could be filled with excuses and apologies, declarations of unfitness, incompetence, lack of knowledge and experience, and they would be true. But even when they were said, there would still remain some difficulties so fundamental that it may well prove impossible for you to understand or for us to explain. But one does not like to leave so remarkable a letter as yours, a letter perhaps unique in the history of human correspondence, since when before has an educated man asked a woman how, in her opinion, war can be prevented, unanswered. Therefore, let us make the attempt, even if it is doomed to failure. Virginia Woolf was born Virginia Stevens, the 25th of January, 1882, in a well-to-do, blended, liberal family. Both her mother, Julia Duckworth, and her father, Leslie Stevens, had been married and widowed. Her mother had had a rather bohemian upbringing, surrounded by artists and intellectuals and her father had come from a family of intellectuals. These characteristics were present and encouraged, for the most part, in the Duckworth-Stevens children. Virginia's father encouraged her intellectual studies, even if her mother did not. Though she was permitted to enter the ladies' department at King's College, at the time women were not able to be awarded degrees. Imagine being Virginia Woolf, and being denied the opportunity to fully engage in the world with your intellect. In both A Room of One's Own and in Three Guineas, Wolf stresses how women's exclusion from education has limited the influence women can exert outside of their homes, independent of their fathers, brothers, husbands, and sons. In Three Guineas, while responding to a request from a women's college, seeking donations to help rebuild their school, Wolf considers the education of women in the context of the central question, how women can help stop war. Let us then discuss as quickly as we can the sort of education that is needed. Now, since history and biography, the only evidence available to an outsider, seems to prove that the old education of the old colleges breeds neither a particular respect for liberty nor a particular hatred of war, it is clear that you must rebuild your college differently. It is young and poor. Let it therefore take advantage of those qualities and be founded on poverty and youth. Obviously, then, it must be an experimental college, an adventurous college. Let it be built on lines of its own. It must be built not of carved stone and stained glass, but of some cheap, easily combustible material which does not hoard dust and perpetrate traditions. Do not have chapels. Do not have museums and libraries with chained books and first editions under glass cases. Let the pictures and the books be new and always changing. Let it be decorated afresh by each generation with their own hands cheaply. The work of the living is cheap. Often they will give it for the sake of being allowed to do it. Next, 
what should be taught in the new college, the poor college. Not the arts of dominating other people, not the arts of ruling, of killing, of acquiring land and capital. They require too many overhead expenses, salaries and uniforms and ceremonies. The poor college must teach only the arts that can be taught cheaply and practised by poor people, such as medicine, mathematics, music, painting and literature. It should teach the arts of human intercourse, the art of understanding other people's lives and minds, and the little arts of talk, of dress, of cookery that are allied with them. The aim of the new college, the cheap college, should not be to segregate and specialise, but to combine. It should explore the ways in which mind and body can be made to cooperate, discover what new combinations make good holes in human life. The teachers should be drawn from the good livers as well as from the good thinkers. There should be no difficulty in attracting them, for there would be none of the barriers of wealth and ceremony, of advertisement and competition, which now make the old and rich universities such uneasy dwelling places, cities of strife, cities where this is locked up and that is chained down, where nobody can walk freely or talk freely for fear of transgressing some chalk mark, of displeasing some dignitary. But if the college were poor, it would have nothing to offer. Competition would be abolished. Life would be open and easy. People who love learning for itself would gladly come there. Musicians, painters, writers would teach there because they would learn. What could be of greater help to a writer than to discuss the art of writing with people who were thinking not of examinations or degrees, or of what honour or profit they could make literature give them, but of the art itself. Wolf presents what might be called a feminist approach to education. Not women seeking parity in the patriarchal world of the established universities, but building something new. She also explores the idealism of this vision of education in a world where education needs to lead to employment. No guinea of earned money should go to rebuilding the college on the old plan, just as certainly none could be spent on building a college upon a new plan. Therefore, the guinea should be earmarked rags, petrol, matches, and this note should be attached to it. Take this guinea, and with it burn the college to the ground. Set fire to the old hypocrisies. Let the light of the burning building scare the nightingales and incarnadine the willows. And let the daughters of educated men dance round the fire and heap armful upon armful of dead leaves upon the flames. And let the mothers lean from the upper windows and cry, Let it blaze, let it blaze, for we have done with this education. And so Wolf presents the original letter writer with the logic that in order for women to help prevent war, they must be educated. And in that interest, a guinea must be sent to help rebuild the women's college. <laughs> Thank you.
If you want to learn more about the writers in this series, sign up for the Feral Culture Lab newsletter, which also features upcoming episodes, my explorations into magic, and news and updates on other Feral Culture Lab projects. And check out the show notes for each episode. They provide a glossary of sorts for the names and references mentioned, as well as links to other online resources. I'm also putting a link to the first She Speaks Volumes episode, another essay by Virginia Woolf, A Room of One's Own, which incidentally was the impetus behind the whole She Speaks Volumes series, as I realized I was not the only woman to not have read many of the texts that defined feminism. Wolf is emphatic about how the structure of universities, as they stood, not only did not prevent war, but that they encouraged it. And in order for women to help prevent war, they would need to change the existing system. But there is no blinking the fact that in the present state of things, the most effective way in which we can help you through education to prevent war is to subscribe as generously as possible to the Colleges for the Daughters of Educated Men. For, to repeat, if those daughters are not going to be educated, they are not going to earn their livings. If they are not going to earn their livings, they are going once more to be restricted to the education of the private house. And if they are going to be restricted to the education of the private house, they are going once more to exert all their influence, both consciously and unconsciously, in favour of war. Of that there can be little doubt. Having donated a guinea to the rebuilding of the college to help this gentleman prevent war, Wolf asks if there's anything further that women can do to help. She has yet another letter, requesting donations to an organization that promotes women's employment in the professions. Now that we have given one guinea towards rebuilding a college, we must consider whether there is not more that we can do to help you to prevent war. And it is at once obvious, if what we have said about influence is true, that we must turn to the professions. Because if we could persuade those who can earn their livings and thus actually hold in their hands this new weapon, our only weapon, the weapon of independent opinion based upon independent income, to use that weapon against war... We should do more to help you than by appealing to those who must teach the young to earn their livings, or by lingering, however long, round the forbidden places and sacred gates of the universities where they are thus taught. Nevertheless, doubts and hesitations there are, and the quickest way to understand them is to place before you another letter. A letter as genuine as your own, a letter that happens to lie beside it on the table. It is a letter from another honorary treasurer, and it is again asking for money. Will you, she writes, send a subscription to a society to help the daughters of educated men to obtain employment in the professions in order to help us earn our livings? Failing money, she goes on, any gift will be acceptable. Books, fruit or cast-off clothing that can be sold in a bazaar. 
Now that letter has so much bearing upon the doubts and hesitations referred to above and upon the help we can give you that it seems impossible either to send her a guinea or to send you a guinea until we have considered the questions which it raises. The first question is obviously, why is she asking for money? Why is she so poor, this representative of professional women, that she must beg for cast-off clothing for a bazaar? That is the first point to clear up. Because if she is as poor as this letter indicates, then the weapon of independent opinion upon which we have been counting to help you prevent war is not, to put it mildly, a very powerful weapon. Though satirical in style, Three Guineas clearly illustrates that all of the spheres of social, political, cultural, and economic influence were controlled by men and excluded women by design. To be clear, war is men's business. It is a creation of men, and men are the beneficiaries of war. If humanity is to evolve, it will be through women gaining political, social, and economic power. In the letter, asking for a donation to rebuild the women's college, Wolf painted a picture of the poor college, a women's college, not mimicking the men's college, but presenting something new. Again, here, in her response to the Association of Professional Women, she lays out what women's equality in the professions means. There it is, then, before our eyes, the procession of the sons of educated men, ascending those pulpits, mounting those steps, passing in and out of those doors, preaching, teaching, administering justice, practising medicine, making money. And it is obvious that if you are going to make the same incomes from the same professions that those men make, you will have to accept the same conditions that they accept. Even from an upper window and from books, we know or can guess what those conditions are. You will have to leave the house at nine and come back to it at six. That leaves very little time for fathers to know their children. You will have to do this daily, from the age of 21 or so to the age of about 65. That leaves very little time for friendship, travel or art. You will have to perform some duties that are very arduous, others that are very barbarous. You will have to wear certain uniforms and profess certain loyalties. If you succeed in your profession, the words for God and Empire will very likely be written like the address on a dog collar round your neck. And if words have meaning, as words perhaps should have meaning, you will have to accept that meaning and do what you can to enforce it. In short, you will have to lead the same lives and profess the same loyalties that professional men have professed for many centuries. There can be no doubt of that. Nonetheless, Wolf determines that women can still better help prevent war by earning an independent income than without one. Her attentions then return to the first letter, from the man asking how women can help prevent war. And in addition to requesting a donation, he has also helpfully provided some advice on practical ways that women can prevent war. 
Whatever the verdict of others may be upon the man in uniform, and opinions differ, there is your letter to prove to you that the picture is the picture of evil, and though we look upon that picture from different angles, our conclusion is the same as yours. It is evil. We are both determined to do what we can to destroy the evil which that picture represents, you by your methods, we by ours. And since we are different, our help must be different. What ours can be, we have tried to show, how imperfectly, how superficially, there is no need to say. But as a result, the answer to your question must be that we can best help you to prevent war, not by repeating your words and following your methods, but by finding new words and creating new methods. We can best help you to prevent war, not by joining your society, but by remaining outside your society, but in cooperation with its aim. That aim is the same for us both. It is to assert the rights of all, all men and women, to the respect in their persons of the great principles of justice and equality and liberty. If one of the questions that Wolf poses in Three Guineas is, do women really want equality with men in a world that men have created? I would say that question has gone unanswered for almost another century, a century in which women have made giant strides and kicked aside obstacles to achieving equality with men in a patriarchal system. As women move more and more into leadership positions, into controlling vast sums of wealth, we should be asking ourselves that question again. And also asking ourselves, what would a feminist future look like? Which is what I might be doing in season two. Season two starts with the surrealist artist, Leonora Carrington. We'll be listening to excerpts from two books, Down Below and The Hearing Trumpet. If you would like to be notified when the next episode is posted, either follow or subscribe to the podcast in your preferred player and or subscribe to the Feral Culture Lab newsletter. A link is in the show notes. <laughs>